Welcome to Unboxed. I'm your host, Connie Nam, the founder of Astrid and Mew. In these conversations, I speak to the founders of some of the most innovative, bold, and exciting businesses to discover the person behind the brand and what it took for them to build their empires. My guest today is Matt Truman, co-founder and executive chair of True Global, an investment and innovation firm that supports consumer businesses. This conversation is so important if you're an early stage founder. By the end of the episode, you'll have a unique insight into what an investor looks for in a founder. You'll find out whether it's the founder or the market opportunity that's important, what kind of businesses will thrive in the next 20 years, and what core characteristics that a founder needs to have. This episode is sponsored by Payhawk. Growing a business from a startup to a scale-up comes with many challenges. One way to solve this is to introduce effective systems at the right time. Payhawk, a corporate card and expenses management solution for scale-ups, have literally transformed many lives at Astrid and Mew since implementing earlier this year. To simplify, Payhawk combines company cards, reimbursable expenses, accounts payable, and seamless accounting software integrations into a single product that can be used globally. In this episode, Matt talks about the importance of passion in a founder. Building the right team and systems have been critical in maintaining mine and the team's passion. Payhawk has been transformative in removing roadblocks to teams, in particular our finance team, by removing manual work and chasing other departments for receipts. Now they're able to focus on partnering with various departments to drive growth of the business instead and stay passionate about what they do. So Matt, tell me about you, your brand and business through Global, and a bit about your career. So firstly, thank you very much for having me. Um, I started True in my bedroom. Prior to that, I trained at Deloitte, the accountants. I was a terrible, rubbish accountant. Thankfully, the gift it gave me was I met Paul, my co-founder and business partner for nearly 20 years now uh, at Deloitte. I went on to Lehman Brothers, where I ran the retail consumer equity research team. And fundamentally, my day job there was looking after people like Tesco in the UK when Terry Leahy ran Tesco and Kroger in the US when Dave Dillon ran Kroger. So in 2008, with all of the dot-coms that we saw, Paul and I saw an opportunity in in internet retailing broadly. And the the niche we picked, which was incredibly naive because I didn't have children then, was a sort of luxury children's wear. So literally Burberry jackets for two-year-olds. I thought there was a a huge market. None of my mates thought there was a huge market, so they didn't buy any of it. But thankfully, Wayne Rooney and his wife bought a whole ton of it. And um, and we grew the business from three of us, Alex, the original founder, uh, in a shed in Chelsea Harbour, to about 120 people in three years, 68 brands, 70 countries. And we sold that business to Tiger Global in New York. As I saw more and more capital flying into the private markets, either venture capital or private equity, I thought quite a lot about the fact that you'd have to have a better answer when someone said, well, why should I work with you rather than the other 300 private equity or venture capitalist firms down the street? I thought there would be a need for a better answer. So that was the driver for really setting up true that and a desire to build an investment firm that we thought culturally would better reflect the future of the industry. So true was born in my bedroom in 2013, just after the birth of my first child, uh, Olivia. And, um, and today, True is a vertically integrated, consumer-only, sector specialist investment and innovation business. And what that means is uh, predominantly four different buckets of businesses. All of them were built at the same time. So I thought I was naive when I was 27, 28. I was even more naive in my 30s uh, trying that. So we built a 
what can best be described sort of strategy and innovation consulting business. And today we advise more than 25 of the world's largest retailers and brands, so about half of which from the US, Walmart, Walgreens, TJX, 7-Eleven, Abercrombie & Fitch, Coca-Cola, J&J. And then over here, people like Primark, ABF, Marks & Spencers, John Lewis, Waitrose, Diageo, Morrison's and a whole load of others. And that effectively takes all of the flow that we see from our vertical, uh, which is about three and a half thousand companies across 40 countries now a year, and shows it to the largest in the world with the view that they get to see it without having to build all the fixed costs required into, into seeing it in a sustainable way. The venture capital and the early stage companies that we show absolutely love it because they wouldn't have the first idea how to get access to a Walmart. Uh, and so we create what I call reciprocal advantage or mutual benefit. And as a result, True sort of sits in the middle, being very deliberate about making those introductions, et cetera. And then in the middle of those two ends of the spectrum is the private equity business. I hate the term private equity because everyone immediately hates you. And really the reality is what we're trying to do is genuinely grow at least double, if not triple the size of companies. So we don't really use leverage and we try and pick market trends and great management teams that are going to grow those businesses two or three times over the life of of ownership. So uh, we have just under a billion dollars of assets under management in that platform. And then the last part is uh, what we call technology partnerships, where because of the ecosystem that we've created, and we now get hundreds of businesses a year coming through us um, every year from technologies all the way through to brands, we have an ability to connect people that maybe we don't have an equity stake in. So we started this technology partnerships really with a view to being more helpful to the underlying ecosystem and to bring in new relationships into True. Today, we have about 13 strategic technology partnerships across the business. And then culturally, as I said, Paul and I um, will talk a bit about, I suspect, background and upbringing and things, but Paul and I have sort of didn't come at, at the city, if you like, with a stereotypical route. My mum grew up above a sweet shop in Lowestoft, which for those who haven't been to Lowestoft, I suspect you, A, don't want to go, but B, um, there's not a huge amount of opportunity in Lowestoft. And so we felt from the start that we wanted to build a more inclusive firm. So True is 55% women. I think the industry benchmark is sort of 10 or 11% in the investment world. So a long way to go, in other, in other words. Um, we've been a B Corp since 2018, so since before it became cool to be a B Corp. Uh, and a lot of our work, charity work, is based upon um, social mobility. Yeah, I so. love that. I, I love that aspect of True, and I'm always drawn as a brand to you and you guys. And I think like you've got such a great vision. How do you balance um, ethics and brand versus the commerciality yeah. as an investor, is or is, th is that not a conflict? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think I think the reality is actually is being good is commercial. That's the reality because if you treat people and the planet and the local, you know, isochrono environment that you're in really, really well, the commercials usually take care of themselves. And if you think about our model, it's based upon this ecosystem, really inclusive ecosystem and with the simple view that the more interesting people you put into it, the more interesting things happen from all different ends of the spectrum, whether it's really early stage startup or the sort of most ingrained industry leader. The reality is if you approach it with that sort of inclusive mentality, I think it will do really well. So what we've tried to do is lead in particularly one area rather than try and lead in everything because ESG is such a broad topic. So we decided to lead in social mobility. So particularly around, you know, taking children and, and young adults out of underprivileged areas 
and giving them opportunity and awareness that opportunities like investment in itself, the investment industry exists for these guys. So we partner with a charity and the largest funders of a charity called Universify, uh, which we do that. And I'm mentoring a 14-year-old autistic lad uh, out of Birmingham in some of the worst conditions that I've personally seen. And it's tremendously rewarding, probably the most rewarding and definitely the most challenging hour of every month that I have. And we also work for Capital for Enterprise, um, particularly providing digital curriculum, which a lot of our own workforce do, because we hire a lot of people from backgrounds that weren't necessarily stereotypically destined for private equity or destined for financial services. Uh, And recently, we've been doing a lot of work with the Centre of Social Justice, which is a charity that Paul and I both love, which is hyper-local charities in areas of disadvantage that are really, really focusing in on the issues of their particular area and using that data to come back to sort of corridors of power, as they say, as the government lobby group to sort of lobby for social change, providing central London and the ministers of power uh, with a real view on what's actually going on in the country. So those sort of three areas plus the B Corp areas that we think about. But I think fundamentally, if you are good and you behave responsibly, you have a responsibility particularly in retail, because retail is very, very different. Most people have their head offices in London, but the reality of where the value is created is out in the shops in very disparate locations, tends to be hyper-local locations, and you have very different pay grades between those. So we feel a real sense of responsibility and pride when we grow these businesses. You know, something like a Cotswold company, our homewares platform has gone from sort of late 20s millions to not far off 100 million under our ownership, and that's created huge amounts of jobs in areas that, probably wouldn't naturally attract that sort of uh, jobs market. So I think you can have an enormous impact, but also be very, very commercial. But it's a sort of new way of, not necessarily a new way, but a sort of hopefully a modern way of trying to create value for investors and all stakeholders alike. Yeah, I love that. And another thing you really focus on is your brand. Yeah. through global, right? Yeah. Because that's very unusual because um, you're not a consumer-facing company. Yeah. You're, I guess, a company-facing company. <laughs> yeah. and like B2B companies rarely focus on the brand, but yeah. you've completely rebranded a couple of years ago and your office looks amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a sew yeah. house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell me more about like that rebranding journey and what impact that's had. Yeah, I think the the you know, brands evolve. And I think, you know, I think the first one we ever did because it was true, I think we Googled for some sort of, you know, fiery object from some sort of Greek dictionary and and ended up with sort of pots of fire on the first ever brand that Paul's wife came up with. So I think it needed to evolve would be the first <laughs> thing. I think the, you know, true as a business has become so all-encompassing, it needed to reflect something a bit more. I think the reality is we spend our lives working with entrepreneurs. You know, that's the energy. Paul and I, this is the third business we've been involved in together. And so it had to reflect that sort of entrepreneurial culture. It also had to reflect some of the inclusivity and the broader um, social aspects that I've just talked about. So I think it's how do you take something that in the finance world, let's face it, most people just do raw blue, right? And they sort of, and and every photo is the same. And and I think we fundamentally have to appeal to people who are entrepreneurs who are creating brands themselves. So if, you know, how can you be a steward, a good steward of a brand if you haven't taken the time to think about your own brand is something we always thought about. And then the office is really, you know, what I described was really that sort of that ecosystem-led approach where you're, you're almost putting these deliberate collisions together to create reciprocal benefit or mutual mutual benefit. And as the same principle, though, that's just the physical manifestation of that, right? Those physical collisions, you know, we have a couple of bars and I love, we host tons of events. We did one a few weeks ago with AWS on the future of AI and you have chairman of FTSE 100 companies mixing with right at the cutting edge 
startups, founders of one or two people, you know, who are just trying to change the industry. And those sort of deliberate collisions are, are invaluable. And we use the office for for that. And a lot of the charity stuff I've talked about as well was a lot of the charities use our office for their own meetings to enable them to scale more quickly as well. Yeah. So tell me about what you do as an investor. For the general public, what yeah. they have access to is Dragon's Den or Shark's Den yeah. in the US. So I think yeah. people just have an instinct um, yeah. irk reaction to investors, yeah. especially private equity investors, as you have said um, before as well. Yeah. So, so tell me, like demystify this for me. Private equity, as I said, it d- tends to not invoke a lot of love um, from, from the moment you say it. I think, you know, investors, I think the first thing is I want to be helpful. You know, as an entrepreneur myself, I've, I, I'm interested in growing things. I think when I look back at it, I'm going to be most proud and probably sad of the things that I'm going to have to sell, you know, because you create great value to the wider stakeholder universe by doing that. So I think true, going back to what I said of why we created it, sort of to better answer that question of, you know, why should I work with you? The world didn't need another investment firm, right? There's plenty of us, but I felt it needed something that was more helpful. That's fundamentally how True has been built by being more helpful to entrepreneurs, founders, management teams. How does that manifest itself? Really, if you take the sort of different buckets, if you take a a classic investment, let's say this business got to 10, 20 million of turnover and it's struggling to sort of break that classic sort of um, high watermark that it's got to, Fundamentally, we have three things. Firstly, we have a team, which is now 45 people who just do retail and consumer all day long, every day. So there's a huge amount of inbuilt experience and a whole variety of different issues, whether that's sitting on boards and helping businesses strategically, that's connecting technologies or border relationship. The venture capital business delivers us a, a flow of technologies. As I said earlier, that's three and a half thousand now from 40 countries, really cutting edge tech that we can introduce to that owner, that entrepreneur, to make their business more efficient, help them grow faster. And that's some amazing stuff, particularly in the world of AI that's coming through. So, you know, a good example is a business called Pixis, which is a new marketing AI tool. Now we can take that Pixis tool from one of our technology partnerships or something we've seen in venture and we can pass it to that entrepreneur. They can implement it and immediately make their business better, grow faster, more efficient. In Pixis's case, reduce marketing costs by about 30, 40% for the same revenue result. Um, same with a number of other tools, entirely up the value chain. So sort of introductions to cutting edge tech is something that we do now as a sort of regular cadence. So that's sort of number two. And then the third thing is the reason for building the strategic consulting platform was really slightly selfishly, I really wanted to understand the thoughts and minds of today's leaders, you know, the boardrooms of today, both from a professional where we're going strategically as an industry, but also just from a character, understanding what makes great leaders. I think it's brilliant to to mix all of those different buckets together. What it means, again, for that 10, 20 million entrepreneur is that fundamentally we give them and can help them if their product or marketing opportunity is relevant, access to the boardrooms of the largest and what you know, I'm very certain that over the next few years, we'll see a lot more partnerships, particularly in, for digital.com businesses, because the costs of digital marketing are pretty prohibitive at the moment. So enabling you to go into the scale of, say, an M&S as a collaboration is incredibly valuable when they have 15 million customers on their database. So whether that's co-branded, whether that's product supply, whether that's some sort of strategic alliance, any sort of distribution, we can make those connections as well. So I think the sort of combination of those three as an investor is the sort of why should I work with you? And then clearly for us, we have a flexibility of mandate. I don't think there's any sort of cookie cutter approach. Retail businesses 
particularly because they require a lot of working capital to get going. Most of them, therefore, need flexibility of finance. And True is fortunate that it has anything really from venture capital, which is, in our case, £50,000 for a sort of young scientist spinning out of UCL or Imperial, all the way up to about £5 million. And then the private equity funds all the way from sort of 10 up to 100 million checks with our largest exposures actually decently north of 100 million in, in Zwift. So the reality of those, it gives you very flexible capital that will suit all sorts of different entrepreneurs as well. So I think when you put all that together, flexible capital, entrepreneurs as founders who are running the investment platform, I don't think, you know, I, I'm, I've probably got an awful lot of weaknesses, but I think understanding as an entrepreneur that it's not a straight line, that it's a pretty bumpy road, that the spreadsheet is always wrong, I think is quite helpful when the guys who are actually investing in you understand that because they've seen it themselves three times over. Yeah, that's um, so refreshing <laughs> to hear because I think that's kind of the fear I had when yeah. I was an early stage entrepreneur. Oh my God, what if I don't meet those numbers? Are they yeah. going to chase me or are they going to fire me? So I think um, that that's really refreshing and like great to hear. Yeah, I think... Um, I think the spreadsheet, I don't think in, in the 23 years I've been doing this, I don't think the spreadsheet's ever been right, especially my own spreadsheets. <laughs> and I think you've got to go into it with, you know, fundamentally you're betting on people and you're betting on people's ability to react, to change, to pivot, to go deeper on something that is working. That's what you're betting on. You're betting on the mindset. And all we think about is fundamentally it's trying to find the right people for whatever that stage of company is at at this point in time, which is very different and very varied in reality, right? There's no, yeah. definitely no cookie cutter approach to that because every entrepreneur has a different aspiration, has a different reason for getting up in the morning, has a different exit horizon, has a different wish list financially. All of those different aspects need to be yeah. taken into account. Yeah. Are there commonalities in mindsets that um, make a successful entrepreneur? That's a great question. I think there were some that we think a lot about and they sort of slightly reflective in True's own value. I think we think a lot about passion for True as a value, I think people have really got to care. It's got to be part of their life, you know, and it isn't, oh, I've got to work Saturday morning. Oh, I can't believe work has got in the way of life. I think it is just part of your life. So I think passion for whatever you're doing is enormously important. And I think passion links to work ethic. I, I don't know what you've found. I suspect you've worked unbelievably yes. hard. <laughs> and I always say you have to, in any field, I, th I do think however bright you are and however great your idea, you have to outwork the opposition. There are plenty of unbelievably talented people in the world. So I think outworking and passion for that. The second thing I, which I personally love is this idea of comfort and discomfort. I think as an entrepreneur, you are permanently uncomfortable. You permanently have that slight feeling in your stomach um, that something's going to go wrong. And in my case, you know, I own stakes in 60 companies of varying influence, which basically means I have a problem every day of the year yeah. um, because something's happening, something's <laughs> going wrong. And the reality is, therefore, you have to get comfortable with the fact that it's uncomfortable. Uh, and I think that that as a sort of trait is really important. And I think the grit and resilience that people require. When I started True, I used to trek into London from, we were living in Richmond at the time, trek into London every day, we didn't have an office. We had no assets under management, no revenue. And I would meet everyone in Pret. So A, I had 10 lattes a day, so I got very fat. <laughs> but B, uh, fundamentally, no one would meet you. And you've got to be prepared for the fact that 99% of people say no. And even some of your friends don't really want it to work. They'll never admit it to you, but they don't really want to because they have sort of haven't decided to go down that high risk, hopefully high reward path. So I think that sort of grit and resilience that comes from just being told no time and again, I think is really interesting. And then the last thing I think is just, you know, when I look at a potential entrepreneur or founder or management team to partner, what you're trying to establish is just trust and transparency. 
And I think people can be quite slow to get to that sometimes. Whereas I think for founders who are starting out, if they attract the right investors, investors understand that it's not a straight line. They understand things will go wrong. And particularly in the consumer industry, which is unbelievably cyclical when you think about it, you know, nearly 60% of the companies are utterly beholden to the sort of wider macroeconomic cycles. You know, that aspect of it means you have to be unbelievably transparent and build a level of trust, I think, with your investor base around it. So I think when we, th- when we sort of package up qualities, you know, we think those ones are probably, hopefully, some of it has rubbed off on us uh, in terms of how we deal with building true. But broadly, those, I think those are the most common things of success that we find. And if you were looking at an investment opportunity, if you had to pick between market opportunity versus the founder, which yeah. one would you choose? It's always a great, it's always, <laughs> <laughs> it's always a great question. For me, my instinct is it's always the founder. You know, I think if you get a, a great founder and an average opportunity, they'll find a way to make that opportunity bigger. They'll pivot into something, they'll buy into a different trend, et cetera. I think you can have a great opportunity, which no matter how big that market, if it's poorly executed, I think it will still amount to very little. So yes, I'd love to have both, but if I had the choice, I'd have the founder who could adapt, you know, with all the qualities I just outlined around trust and transparency and work ethic and passion. I think if you had those, it's way better any day, I think. What are some businesses that you can proudly talk about? (laughs) I know you might not want to pick favorites. (laughs) It's like my children. Look, I think we've been really fortunate is the first thing to say. We've been lucky enough to back some amazing entrepreneurs. And as I said earlier, it's never a straight line. But if, you know, just picking a few, we backed a mental health business called Unmind run by Nick Taylor. Best compliment I can give to Nick is he's taken it from him on his own in our office being incubated um, to a business backed by some of the world's best venture capitalists uh, with tens of millions of capital raised in an area that I think is this sort of growing well, hugely growing area of the market in what is mental health, that mental health obviously everyone has. It's an area that's gradually sort of defining its corporate product in the right way. And Nick has, the best thing Nick has achieved, I think, is transitioning the business through time, i.e. upskilling the management when he needs to, going through different processes, putting people in place and expanding it across the world now such that he's, I don't know if it's public yet, but he's signed a very large deal with one of the most prominent brands in the world Uh, in the United States, which is huge testament to that sort of willingness to continually improve. And it's been a huge return uh, on the financial investment for us. And we're still quite significant holders in it, despite starting effectively being his very first pre-seed investment. There was no product when we invested. It was sort of a a bet on a a medium-term trend. The second one, um, I would say, this is in the venture portfolio when we do stuff really early. Um, We backed a guy called Stu Sunderland, uh, he's a great guy, Stu, and um, this was a business called City Pantry that sort of just eat for corporates. And we personally, and I'm sure Stu would say the same, got incredibly lucky as we sold that business to Just Eat uh, just before the pandemic. So there wasn't a huge amount of call for corporate catering <laughs> between 21 and 23, but we got very, very lucky in terms. But the, the, the notion of companies having to offer more to employees to provide more, ironically, more flexible ways of working, a better working environment, all the trends that we bet on them. We bet on a great entrepreneur, Stu, who again, just kept evolving the product and the business. And and that was very successfully sold as well. And then uh, the last one was a marketing technology business, again, in the venture portfolio, which started as Photospire, which is effectively video marketing, personalized video marketing at scale. 
Uh, we backed uh, back two brothers, the O'Meara brothers, and Jer, the founder and CEO. Me and him got on great because that was a business that we could really help drive introductions. Uh, and we did the same with Unmind. With Unmind, I think we looked at it the other day. We've made upwards of 80 corporate introductions to Unmind. And I don't know what the end number is, but it's somewhere around 25% of revenue true is responsible for creating those leads for Nick. Uh, and very similar story with sort of the early years of Photospire and what became Spirable. And that was bought by a US SPAC, uh, the height of the sort of SPAC boom called Genius Sports. And the guys did really well, but it was, it was personalized video marketing at scale. And then just shifting gears into the private equity uh, business, I mentioned Cotswold earlier. I love the business because we built it gradually, carefully. The brand's in a tremendous spot. Uh, it's got a huge multi-channel, similar to your business, huge multi-channel opportunity to continue growing. It's got a really nice brand presence amongst consumers. It's very, very good quality product at sort of less than oak furniture land prices. So its value proposition is really, really powerful. And as I said earlier, the sort of furniture business went through a really tough time you know, horrifically tough time last year. You know, to give you some examples, you know, freight costs went from $1,800 um, to $22,000 in six weeks, and then all the way back again down to now sub 1000 And fundamentally, you're trying to plan for that is really tough. But Cotswold weathered that storm, and a lot of the environment we're going into now is a bit about, I think, hanging in there, making sure your economics are robust and strong and, and continuing to thrive because there'll be an awful lot of business models that haven't been built on those sort of solid foundations. The margins aren't in the right place. The economics aren't in the right place. So, you know, Cotswold, I'll be incredibly proud of. And as I say, because it was actually in Norwich where my family are from, uh, it's one of those that's slightly more personal to me and that I, it wasn't the reason we did the investment, I would add, <laughs> but it's one of those more personal to me. It's had a huge impact on the local area uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the growth in jobs and the, the sort of buzz it's created as the largest dot-com uh, in in the Norwich area. What are some common mistakes that founders and businesses make? That's a very good question. I, I think that the most common is not to be utterly realistic. So I think people, particularly in the last four or five years, and I would argue potentially over the last 10, have chased capital raising as a measure of success. And what capital raising fundamentally does, if it's if you've got the wrong strategy, which I would argue most have in consumer, um, it, it creates the wrong behavior. It puts the founder management team under the wrong pressure. And over the last three or four or five years, that's been grow at all costs. And the challenge with that is that makes you make decisions that aren't right for the long-term value creation of the brand or the business. So I think, the, firstly, from a capital raising perspective, having utter realism about what you're trying to achieve over what time frame is really important. So I think the first is pick your investors very, very carefully. Make sure your timeline is absolutely aligned with theirs. I think the second thing is just completely unrealistic financial expectations. So, you know, I've lost count of the amount of times that I've seen Facebook is 50% of sales now. Don't worry, it will fall to 15 to 20 as we scale and it just never does, you know, because actually you're trying to compete with, you know, a global duopoly in digital marketing that is Facebook and Google primarily. So, I think there's been very a lot of unrealistic sort of financial expectations and and models which have never borne any resemblance to truth as well. And I think the third thing is they haven't been honest with their investor community. So I think, you know, those three things I would say are probably the, the biggest challenges people make. And the, if you think about it, once they're made, 
they're very difficult to undo because you're left with the investor base that you deserve. And, you know, and the financial expectation is very hard to untangle a retail model given the complexities of supply chain, complexity of lead times, complexity of working capital. And once you've burnt trust, I think it's very difficult to get it back. And what we're seeing is obviously a lot of money coming out of consumer at the moment. People get very wary, which perversely means I get really excited because it means there's lots of opportunity <laughs> of amazing people you get to back. But the reality is once you've burnt that trust, it's very, very difficult to attract capital back. And as an investor, obviously the, the capital markets environment has have changed a little bit. Have yeah. you pivoted your strategy? As an um, investor. Yeah, very good question. Have we pivoted? Not really. We've expanded is how I would think about it. So true is largely because Paul and I were involved in that sort of first iteration of direct consumer internet businesses. We've always done direct consumer brands. We've never been, never really been in sort of Mark Andreessen's camp of software is going to eat the whole world, particularly in consumer. So we've always been multi-channel. So if you look at Ribble Cycles, for example, we opened showrooms. Cotswold is about to open its eighth showroom and we'll keep doing that from a sort of multi-channel. We believe we need to be wherever the consumer is and that is ultimately in a multi-channel environment. So we will continue to do those types of deals. The bar has become higher for those types of deals. Um, we need to see more profit, need to see more cash flow um, and we don't want to see growth at all costs. So a lot of it, as I said earlier, is about sort of hanging in there a little bit in this tough environment. So we'll do that. Where we have expanded is really through the experience that we've had in the venture portfolio, that what we found with particularly B2B, I hesitate to use the word SaaS because everyone immediately thinks 20 times sales. I prefer probably tech-enabled technologies where we've helped those businesses, you know, for Peanut, the, the sort of women's um, maternity and social network platform and menopause platform. We've made upwards of 80 introductions to corporates. I mentioned Unmind earlier, huge proportion of their revenue. Same with a whole host of these brands that we can dramatically accelerate their pipeline because of that ecosystem we've created. So part of the private equity strategy is to do more of the sort of tech-enabled services, tech-enabled platforms moving forwards because we think the true model is uniquely set up to be to be helpful to them. Um, but it's still a relatively new thing. Zwift is our only real sort of genuine SaaS uh, business in our portfolio now, but we're looking to actively engage in that at the moment. So I would say expanded because as the models got better, our ability to help has got better. And you mentioned earlier there's a huge market in the mental health space. Do you see yeah. other market opportunities in uh, other sectors? You're looking for these sort of structural tidal waves, if you like, for want of a better phrase. 20-year trends. The last one was really this penetration of the internet, which in some categories has gone to 50% of all sales, you know, such as apparel. In things like grocery, it's a little bit further behind at sort of 10 to 12%. So you're looking for things like that. So the two that we think a lot about, one is the mental health trend, but the, the second one is this sort of the ESG tidal wave that is coming, particularly technologies around climate. Just to make it really clear, what do you mean by ESG? So ESG is a very broad ranging topic, effectively it encompasses thoughts on the environment, thoughts on social, which predominantly is around the impact on people. And then G stands for governance, which is anything from how boards are governed all the way through how government attacks various different legal opportunities and challenges that comes its way. So it's the broad impact on the environment, on people, and on governance and the way we think about it. The bit that True is focused on is on the social side, which is really around the impact on people, uh, which is the social mobility work I've talked about, which is really around how do we take people who are fundamentally talented, who just happen to have been born in 
and the privileged areas and try and provide an equality of opportunity. It won't necessarily prove an equality of outcome, but it will provide an equality of opportunity. And that's where we spend most of our time. Most of the money is going into the environment for all of the reasons um, that are very topical now with COP28 just around the corner as the world's leaders gathering to sort of renew their pledges, if you like. So the ESG is, for me, this huge tidal wave, but it ebbs and flows. And I think if, you know, at the moment, the environment is attracting most of the the dollars of investment. Technologies that help large corporates meet their increasing regulatory burdens, which are only going to get more and more heavy over the next sort of few years. So I think, you know, ESG is the next 20-year sort of tidal wave. And so we think a lot about that. So that's number one. The third one I would say is is health and wellness. And that's not a new thing. That's not say wellness from a sort of beauty products perspective. It's more wellness and sort of general customer behavior. So if you look at things like alcohol consumption and smoking between 20 and 30 years old, it is half of my generation. I'm 44. So it's already halved in that somewhere between 14 and 24 year period. Exactly the same thing with you know, broader other bad habits that are coming out. And there is a huge trend towards health, wellness, fitness in particular, and looking after yourself. And so we backed a healthy food business a couple of years ago called Soul Fresh, which was an amalgam of sort of, at the time, about five or six brands that really core were about three or four in things like alternative milks, in terms like gut health products, veganism, things like that. So we see those particular trends as being very, very significant as well. So I think those are sort of the four key big structural tidal waves of the next 20 years. And if I had to put, I guess, all our money on one, then I think the ESG, particularly technologies coming through ESG, are going to be incredibly powerful, both for the environment and the, and the world's sort of climate problems, but also in terms of an, an investable area. Okay, on to the quick fires. Yeah. Five slides that a founder needs to include in an investor deck. Vision. Team, single trade economics, five-year plan. I think that's only four. That's probably all I would do, to be honest. And just to be clear, what does single trade economics mean? Can so you break it me- that down? It means that if I have a product, so let's say a jewelry product, that I understand and I've tested my sales, what I can sell it for, what I think I can buy it for, what it's going to cost me to distribute, what it's going to cost me to market, and therefore leads me to a sort of contribution and therefore, the, the economics, if you like, of the single trade are proven and that it can be profitable. And I've done my work around it, so I really understand that. And it isn't a flight of fancy and guesswork that it needs to go from X to Y over time without any real dramatic reasoning on it. Three characteristics you look for in a founder. Passion for the company. Passion for the idea. Level of comfort and discomfort. Uh, and utter realism. So four. two lots of passion (laughs) what's the best opening line that a founder can pitch you (laughs) for me personally i think a a level of humbleness um and the opening line would be here are my weaknesses i totally i understand my weaknesses and this is how i'm looking to address those weaknesses and this is why i need xyz to help me complement my strengths and what's the best advice you'd give an early stage entrepreneur Utter realism is the first one and and for me the most important because I've learned it myself. And second is to outwork everyone else. Amazing. Thank you so much, Matt. That was so inspiring. Thank you so so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow the podcast wherever you're listening or watching. You can follow me at Connie Nam, Astrid and Mew at Astrid and Mew, 
and Unboxed Instagram page at unboxed underscore founder confidential. See you next week. 